0: You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future. But until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Now when they had departed, behold and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good.
1: Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we open up these words, These words that you've given to us, we ask that you would speak them to us with power, that your spirit would take these words and apply them to us, that you would reorder our lives, reorder our thinking, reorder our feeling and acting as a result of being with you in this text. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Three recurring statements that your mind probably caught if you were paying any attention to the reading that just happened. (laughs) This happened to fulfill what the prophet was saying. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill what the prophet had said. What we're given here in Matthew is a new way of understanding history. When you think about the events of your life, Okay, when you think about the grand events of, of world history, uh, how does it all hold together, or does it? You know, how, how do you think about all of the events that have transpired in life? You know, the, the, a secular way of thinking about this is to kind of be uh, agnostic on the question of whether or not there's any inherent meaning, deep meaning, in the world that's been created. Right? If we're going to find any meaning, it's going to be by us discovering it in ourselves. And again, Matthew offers us a very different picture of world history, Uh, a history that has a beginning, according to the scriptures, a a good beginning, created by God, for God, from God, all things to God, and having a time of culmination, a time at which history itself finds its completion or fulfillment. It seems to me that in our age, we don't see history this way. You and I, we've been trained to think about history in a very different manner. trained to think about history more as a cacophony than as a symphony. More as a collection of random, disconnected actions, meaningless events, than as parts of a grand orchestra brought together to make something, well, something that's both tragic and beautiful. And to such a stunted view of world history and the shape of our own lives, The Bible, again, has a radically different proposal, a different solution, a different account of what our world is. Claiming that all of life, again, is from God, for God, made by God, teeming with divine intent, all of life. Ordered in its every detail towards God's good plans, his holy plans for all of creation. Not a cacophony, but a symphony. We're a people we find made in the image of God. Created for communion with the Creator. World history created, directed in such a way that the Creator would one day dwell among us. It's quite a claim. That one day the Creator of all world history, all of creation, would one day dwell among us. That He would come, Emmanuel, God with us. Now I realize that these are bold claims. From the scriptures striking claims that the Bible makes about the kind of world that we actually live in a world where God is and we are we have existence and our existence is found in him and we are as a result of divine intent the divine will where God has drawn near God has come near in history to us become one of us in order that we might be brought near to God and and if this is the case this should certainly change the way that we think about history, Uh, the way that we think about its coherence, the rise and the fall of kings and nations, presidents and prime ministers, and the things that happened to you this morning on your way to church, that all of history finds its culmination in the God who becomes flesh with and for us, in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Because if this story is true, okay, if if the Christian story is right in its basic claims, that God has become a man, that God has chosen to dwell among us, that for some deep purpose in creation, God has taken human flesh onto himself in order to bring human, uh, humans to himself, to make himself one with his creatures, if that's true, then again, we should expect a certain ordering of all of life, of all of world history, Would it be so strange then, if we found that all of human history was preparing for, pointing towards, this culminating event of God with us, Emmanuel? When I think about when my wife and I found out we were expecting our first child, we've got three more, uh, three three now, and one more on the way. (laughs) Great, yeah, good. Good, one more on the way. When we were getting ready for our first, okay, Naomi, who's now seven years old, uh, a lot of things changed for us. You know, I, um, I had to find a job. I had to try to figure out how I was gonna finish school um, quickly. I had, we had to figure out getting a bigger place, okay, having space, we we, we had to begin preparing for this new life that was going to come among us, we did some some, uh, parenting classes together and uh, kind of preparing for what to expect when you're expecting and all all these kinds of things. All, All of life began to be directed towards this new event, this new life that was coming and then finally that life came, of course, with all of its pains and sorrows and joys. And what the Bible teaches is that when God created the world, he made it to invade it with his own life. This was his intention from the beginning. He made it to invade this world that we live in with his own life. All of world history ordered toward this one event, preparing, anticipating, watching, waiting. And Matthew shows us this here in this passage. In his own account of world history, Matthew shakes us up from our secular account of world history. He shakes us up from this secular slumber in order to tell us that the world isn't what you thought it was. Okay, world history doesn't fit together in the way that you might have assumed. And the world isn't just a cacophony of events, but a symphony full of patterns, melodious lines that all fit together to make a beautiful and tragic whole. I was listening this week to um, the Mission soundtrack. I don't know if some of you have seen the movie The Mission, uh, with the central track as uh, one entitled Gabriel's Oboe. If you haven't heard it, you should go listen to it this afternoon. Uh, it's a beautiful soundtrack, uh, and the way that this this piece is woven throughout the whole is beautiful. You know, there's uh, there's early indications of where this melody is going. And then you hear the melody in one form, and then it comes back again a little bit later, and it comes to, comes to its climax eventually. And there's other pieces that complement it, right? Um, harmonic lines, etc. World history, it turns out, according to the scriptures, we ought to think of in something of this way, the way that a symphony is orchestrated with melodic lines that play out and that repeat, that recur that find an earlier instance, that find their culmination in a later time. And this is the kind of perspective that Matthew offers to us. Okay? We tend to think about prophecy um, in a way that I think Matthew doesn't, doesn't think about, okay? or that the early church uh, uh, apostolic writers and the early church fathers didn't think about. Right? Prophecy as a one-to-one prophetic word. A prophet said that this is going to happen, and then it happens later. I mean, that, that's, that's true. That's, that's uh, part of the, 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 the prophetic um, realm of what's going on. But prophecy actually has a, a larger reference point in the Scriptures. It actually has to do with preceding events that tie together with later events, f- foreshadowings that happen earlier on that point to, point to and prepare us for things that happen later. And we're going to see all of this happening in three different sections in our passage this morning. Matthew shows us this by focusing on how Jesus' birth story, Okay, again, this is going to come up over and over and over again through Matthew and comes up over and over and over again throughout the whole New Testament where we see things that have happened previously in the Old Testament finding their culmination, their fulfillment, their completion in the life and ministry and events surrounding the the life of Christ. And here's what Matthew shows us this morning. First, that Israel's exodus comes to fulfillment in Jesus. Okay, you might say Israel's exodus is completed in Jesus. Second, that Rachel's weeping is completed in Jesus or fulfilled in Jesus. And that Joseph's being set apart. Okay, Think about the story of Joseph in the Old Testament being set apart from his brothers. That Joseph's being set apart from his brothers finds its completion in Jesus. Right, we're going to walk through these three claims together. Beginning in verse 13, Israel's exodus is completed in Jesus. Beginning in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now there's a lot going on here in this passage. And for people familiar with the story of scripture, there is a lot of Different things firing in your mind about correspondences between this new Joseph the dreamer who's being called into Egypt and an older Joseph the dreamer who's called into Egypt. Joseph the son of Jacob. Uh, This Joseph too is a son of Jacob we find in chapter 1. Moving into Egypt for a time of safety in order to then be called out from the land of Egypt. There's much happening here that corresponds to a prior story of another Joseph the dreamer. And here's Matthew offering to us, again, what seems like just straight history in a certain way. Right? Uh, just a depiction of these events. But then he ends this, this section with this strange commentary. This was to fulfill. Okay, the, the Greek word here is uh, plerao, for, uh, uh, from that root. And it has the sense of a filling up. A filling up, okay, a filling up of, a, of a cup or an empty vessel. Uh, bringing something to completion. Okay, bringing something to its proper end. Is the is the sense here so uh, this was to fulfill or to bring to completion what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son and you say which prophet said this and we find it in Hosea chapter 11 right? out of Egypt I called my son and we turn then to Hosea and we say oh wow so Hosea is is prophesying that that Jesus would be born and would be uh, taken into Egypt and then brought out, and then you go go to Hosea and you say, and you scratch your head, you say that doesn't seem to be what, what Hosea's point is. Okay, Hosea is talking about uh, Israel's exile. Uh, he's talking and he's he's talking to Israel uh, up, up, upon their exile, and he's pointing back to a time where God cared for His people. He's pointing back to a time where God called His people out of the land, and actually this is a a, a pattern that goes back even further to Abraham. Abraham, who was called by God into the land, and then there was a famine. Abraham's called out of the land. He goes into Egypt, and then he's called out from Egypt. Right? And then we see the exact same pattern happening with, with Israel, with Jacob. Right? So we see, these again, these correspondences. But Hosea seems to be speaking here of this, to this time of exile. Okay? He's reminding the people of God who they are and whose they are, to whom they belong. And he's reminding them that this people Israel okay, is facing judgment and exile. He's reminding them that the God who took Abraham by the hand and led him into the, uh, uh, first into the land of promise, then El into Egypt, then back into the land of promise, that this is the same God with whom they have to do. Right? This is the same God who loves them and who's going to be faithful to them in their own exodus. Right? He's the God who took Israel, uh, uh, or Jacob, who was renamed Israel, and his family in a time of famine out of the land of promise and into the land of Egypt, right, where they endured trials and even enslavement. um, only to be called back out of Egypt into the land of promise. And what we find Hosea seeing from the scriptures is that God is the God of Exodus. God is the God who brings his collective son, you might say, his collective son Israel, out of bondage and into the land of promise. This is what God does. This is how God relates to his child Israel. He calls them out from Exodus and into the land of promise. This is who God is. And Hosea sees this in reading the scriptures of Israel. He sees this dynamic of who God is and gives, gives the people of God confidence that this is who God is for them. He's the God who leads them by the hand for a time of safety, trial, temptation, even bondage in Egypt, and then leads them out from that bondage into the land of promise. And so we too can hear the same. Okay, this is who God is for us. Not just for Israel in the past, not just for Christ, who we'll consider, but also for you and for me. This is who God is. He's the God of Exodus, who brings his son, Israel, out from bondage. So I think it's appropriate for us to pause here and recognize that some of you here today, this morning, even those born into the land of promise, born into all of the covenant blessings of God, have also experienced this dynamic. Maybe some of you here are actually finding yourselves in this time of bondage, in a time of deep trial and temptation, in a kind of Egypt experience. And if this is you, what we're instructed to see is that God is the God of Exodus, and he's faithful, he's faithful to you, and that you can count on his promises, that in a time of trial and temptation, where you feel stuck, that's not the end of the story. Our God is a God who brings you out from the land of bondage and into the land of promise. And as with Abraham, and as with Jacob, as with Israel, all of Israel, God calls you out from there. Even today, he calls you out from the land of bondage. And he calls you to know him and his promises. And he does this and assures us of this by giving his son to live out this pattern for us. His son who endures bondage for us. His son who enters into Uh, the land of captivity for us, taking on our human flesh, but then is brought out from that land into the land of promise and secures our freedom. This is what God does in Christ. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God who gives us his name. He allows us to be tested, but ultimately calls us back. And again, how we can be sure of this, how we can be sure that we will be set free, that all of God's children will be set free, called out from, from Egypt into the land of promise, is when we see This this is what Jesus has done for us. He's the one who's ultimately the fulfillment of what happened with Israel's exodus. Out of of Egypt, I called my son. This is Jesus, and it's who he is for us. See, Israel's exodus out of Egypt proclaims this later exodus where God would call out his son into freedom and life, the land of promise and all those in him. Second, we find that Rachel's weeping is also completed in Jesus. Not just Israel's exodus, but that Rachel's weeping finds its completion in the time of Jesus' birth. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Again, our minds go back to a prior story a story of a prior great redeemer of Israel, a man named Moses, born in the land of Egypt, uh, around whose death was the massacre of many children, okay, uh, in order to prevent the lineage of Israel from growing. We find in Exodus 1, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. If it is a son, you shall kill him. And Matthew, again, reads the events of the Redeemer's birth, Jesus, in light of the events of a prior Redeemer's birth, and sees them, in them a correspondence. Jesus, the new deliverer, against whom kings would rage, as Psalm 2 says. The nations rage against the Lord and his anointed. But who would be rescued within the land of Pharaoh? Just as Moses actually found security within Pharaoh's own household within Egypt. So Jesus would be led into the land of Pharaoh in order to find safety even from this, this massacre. And Matthew goes on from here to connect this situation with yet another prophecy. Verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. Rachel, weeping for her children. And we might ask, how is the weeping of these women of Bethlehem connected to the events around Jesus, uh, the events of Rachel's own weeping? Right, how is this a fulfillment, uh, a completion of Rachel's weeping? Let's think about this. You'll remember in Genesis 35, we find an account of Rachel, who is, of course, Jacob's wife. Right? Jacob, whose name is turned, changed to Israel, uh, marries Rachel, uh, and Rachel actually becomes the, mo- uh, the mother of Joseph. Uh, These people are all connected here in in, uh, this part of Matthew's gospel, right? We're seeing the the fulfillment of Israel's exodus. We're seeing the fulfillment of Rachel's weeping, uh, the wife of Israel. And then we're seeing the fulfillment of something to do with Joseph, as as we'll see, their their, their uh, firstborn son. And we see some interesting parallels even here between Rachel's story and Mary's story. Both are found journeying on the way to Bethlehem, great with child, Uh, Again, you you may remember the story of Rachel, that she's on her way with her husband, great with child, to Bethlehem. They're on their way to Bethlehem. And here's what it says in explanation in Genesis 35. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. It's an interesting, tragic death of Rachel, who comes to be seen as the idealized mother of Israel, mother of all of Israel's children and she dies on the way. She's on her way to Bethlehem, she never makes it there. She dies on the way. And with Jeremiah the prophet, she becomes this idealized mother of Israel, Uh, crying out from Ramah, which is near Bethlehem, mourning for the lost children of Israel, for the children never to return to the land. But what's interesting is that actually in Jeremiah's context, Jeremiah 31, uh, this weeping of Rachel, her refusing to be comforted. It happens right in the middle of a passage that's full of hope. It's interesting that, that, uh, Jer- that Matthew pulls this passage from Jeremiah 31, which has everything to do with turning mourning into dancing. Uh, joy, or from sorrow to joy. Uh, eventually leading to the promise of a new covenant. Right? And um, Matthew picks up this line from Jeremiah of Rachel weeping, refusing to be comforted. And it leads to the very next line, the very next verse in Jeremiah 31 is this. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work. There is hope for your future. And your children shall come back to their own country. It's as though Matthew is putting this all together. Reading the story of Rachel. Reading Jeremiah's prophecy. uh, Reading Rachel's story in a manner that prepares us for Mary another woman who would be traveling great with child on the way to bethlehem but where rachel would die on the way mary would arrive and give birth to the son who is the savior of the world then was fulfilled matthew says what was spoken by the prophet jeremiah rachel weeping for her children because they are no more and what i think matthew's doing here is again seeing mary's journey and jesus birth and herod's wrath seeing in all of these events in Bethlehem's uh, mother's weeping, seeing in all of these events the fullness, the completion of Rachel's weeping. Okay. He's seeing in the massacre of these children, the mourning of Bethlehem's mother's uh, a fulfillment, a culmination of a, of a tragedy that happened earlier on. Okay, of all of Rachel, the personified mother of Israel, all of her weeping, all of her mourning over the lost children of Israel. In this event, the massacre of the innocents, at Jesus' birth. Matthew is saying there's the fulfillment of this, the culmination, the end of all mourning, because the Savior has come. The Savior who would escape this massacre. This begins our hope, and it actually follows very closely with what Jeremiah is doing in Jeremiah 31. Right? This weeping, which takes a turn right afterwards, a turn to hope. A weeping which is very real. Lost babies. <laughs> you know, uh, a time of great mourning, refusing to be comforted. Very real. And yet what we're told here in Matthew, what Matthew sees is that in this event of great weeping and mourning is the end of all mourning. It's the last stand of loss because Jesus has come to make all things new, even to raise the dead. So a quick recap before our third point. Israel's exodus, we find, is completed in Jesus, the one who would be called out from Egypt, Rachel's weeping is completed in Jesus, okay? It finds its culmination in these events of weeping and mourning around Jesus' birth. But that's the end. It's its completion, because Jesus comes and promises new life from the dead. And the third episode that we find in our passage this morning is what I've called the setting apart of Joseph as the completion uh, or as being completed in Christ. I'll explain more what that means. Let's read this section. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, might come to fulfillment, completion, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now there's a lot of scholarly division over what this means, okay, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. they have puzzled over this. Because there simply isn't just one place that you can go to in the Old Testament where you say, oh, this is where the prophet says the Son of God or the Messiah would be called the Nazarene. We we don't find that. So how is Jesus' Nazarene identity then? A fulfillment of the prophets? That's the question that we're left with to wrestle with. And again, let's think about this. Here's another dream. Coming to Joseph, the other dreamer, the son of Jacob, this time in Egypt. And of course, this takes our minds back again to the original Joseph, son of Jacob and Rachel, who had dreams in Egypt which saved him from his own destruction. And interestingly, the first dreamer, Joseph, named Joseph, is one of only two people in the whole Hebrew Bible who is called or who is associated with the name Nazarite. Joseph, one of two people, the other is Samson. Okay, but he's, he's called the Nazarite of his brothers in two places, two significant places. One in the, towards the end of um, uh, uh, Exodus and the other one in Deuteronomy. Okay, the Nazarite of his brothers. Nazarite uh, meaning the one who is separated out from. Okay, so Joseph is the one who is separated from his brothers, set apart from his brothers. And obviously in the context of Joseph's story, it's set apart to deliver them. He becomes the deliverer of all of Israel, all of his brothers. He becomes the means of salvation, of God's salvation to all of his brothers by being set apart as the one who goes off to Egypt. And here we see again Matthew offering a corresponding story, a corresponding account of this new Joseph who receives dreams, who's set apart, and who finds his way to a town called Nazareth, what is something of a backwater town called Nazareth finds himself named as one who is set apart. Right? Uh, named as something of a Nazarene or Nazarite, related to Nazarite. And what I believe Matthew wants us to see in all of this is that world history, it has a rhyme and a reason. Uh, it's less like a cacophony and more like a symphony. Israel's exodus was not the last word but awaited a greater exodus. Jesus and all of us with him, called out of the land of bondage. Rachel's weeping awaited its completion in a day of mourning that would bring all mourning to an end, when the Christ would be rescued from massacre in order to bring an end to all death and to bring the dead to life. And finally, Joseph's separation from his brothers, a way that a greater redeemer, one who was separated out from his brothers, who would be separated from his brothers, even despised by his brothers, rejected, but he would save them. Even you and even me, salvation proclaimed to the world. And this is the good news of the gospel, that all of world history, all the prophecies, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus, the culmination of Israel's story. We're a people in bondage. We're a people who weep and mourn. We're people who are divided out, separated out from our families in all the wrong ways and for all the wrong reasons. And the promise of the gospel in Matthew is that all of our bondage, all of our weeping, all of our mourning, all of our divisions are finally brought to their end, their completion in the god-man jesus christ who's loved us and given himself for us let's pray our father there is a lot happening in this passage much that much that we cannot grasp or understand and we confess our limitations to you and ask that you would enable us to see christ here Proclaimed here in this text for our good, for your glory. Father, may we see in Christ the end of all exodus. May we see in Christ the end of our weeping. May we see in Christ a Savior separated out from his brothers for the salvation of all who are yours. We ask this in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristchurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristchurchToronto.ca.